So mm-hmm. my dad and my sister were prepping me for that conversation to, to go in and, and be able to answer, you know, my name and my age and my grade and where I came from, like basic conversation stuff. Mm-hmm. And this way she would not, you know, object <laughs> to the idea of having this kid that needs all of this remediation work uh, in her classroom. So and and in those two weeks, I was ready and practiced the whole thing. I know how to answer, you know, give my name and my age and basic conversation with the teacher. And I was going into the classroom ready to have that conversation. There was, you know, no problem whatsoever. So as soon as I walk in and she calls my name and, and calls me to her desk, and then she looks at me straight in the eye and starts to ask, asking me, what's your name? Where are you from? And I froze. I, uh, I started, I, I knew all the answers, but I was like, I'm not going to lie to this lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a very serious situation. <laughs> so I, told, I started speaking to her in Arabic. I told her, oh. listen, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know how to answer. I know exactly what you're asking me. And I can, you know, uh, fool you and give you the, the answers, the prepackaged answers that I memorized. But let me tell you the situation. I know nothing. (laughs) Welcome to Activist NMT, a podcast about nonviolent NMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning NMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Fadl Kaboob about his personal story. His childhood in Saudi Arabia and Tunisia, being a parent, his love of music, and how music has become part of his parenting. Fadl is an economics professor at Denison University in Granville, Ohio, and the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, an interdisciplinary public policy think tank. The focus of his academic work is on how the lens of MMT can inform developing nations, which we talk about in the second half of part two. I've written a post filled with links to Fadl's papers, posts, and appearances, a link to which you can find in the show notes. Today's story begins with a nine-year-old Fadl at the center of a political drama between his two home countries of Saudi Arabia and Tunisia. When his grandparents in Tunisia fell ill, his father rushed home from his job in Saudi Arabia to take care of them. Saudi Arabia's immigration laws require foreign workers to give their employers not only their own passport, but also the passports of all their children. Unfortunately, when Fadl's father left for Tunisia, the employer decided not to release Fadl's passport, essentially holding the nine-year-old hostage. His family leveraged the media to shame Saudi Arabia into allowing the little boy to be reunited with his family. To this day, Fadl has never seen his original passport. 
We then turn to the story of how Fadl joined the fifth grade in Tunisia with children who had a three and a half year head start in learning French. This is the language spoken during half of the instruction time in the country. The overriding theme of Fadl's story, however, is how there is no place on earth where he is not considered an outsider or immigrant. Babies born in Saudi Arabia are only considered citizens if their father is a Saudi citizen. Fadl's mother was a citizen, but his father was Tunisian. When he moved to Tunisia, he had a Saudi accent and was unable to speak French. And now, even though a U.S. citizen, he remains an immigrant. The experience, plus witnessing the experience of his parents and home countries, has greatly influenced and inspired not only his academic work, but also his decisions as the parent of three little boys. This podcast, Activist MMT, is dedicated half to academic concepts and half to the personal stories of how people, both lay people and academics, came to MMT and how it changed them. The reason I believe these personal stories are so important is because it's not possible to separate the academic concepts from those who develop and promote them. This includes their personal stories, what they care about, and how they choose to use the power they have or don't have. The idea was primarily inspired by Fred Lee in his 2006 book, A History of Heterodox Economics, which was recommended to me by Nathan Tenkus. Neoclassical economics would have you focus only on their maths and models and not the discriminatory behavior of universities and journals and those that back those universities, journals, and their economists. They would prefer you not look at any other discipline, such as history, culture, sociology, institutions, and especially politics. The entire neoliberal project would have you focus only on the how are you going to pay for a question and not the minor inconvenience of having to change the very foundation of human society if we are not to go extinct in the coming decades. I talk much more about this concept of interdisciplinarity in my introduction to episode 81 with Richard Tai. But for now, on to my conversation with Fadl Kaboob. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Enjoy. You can contact me directly on Twitter or by emailing me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron. Patrons get exclusive, super early access to nearly every episode, and they also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash activistmmt. Thank you to all my patrons for your continued faith and support, and thank you for becoming one if you can, and for sharing this around if you can't. Finally, I'm also developing a large collection of Learn MMT resources, which you can find at activistmmt.org. Thanks. Hello, Fadal. It's so nice to see you. It's so nice to finally be talking to you. Um, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and for doing this. Um, so uh, I wanted to I wanted to take this opportunity to do to try and do something different. You 
you told some of your personal story on your Money on the Left podcast, but I was I, I was hoping that you would be willing to go a little more into your personal story. And the reason that I want to do this is, I think creating the context for the academic concepts is really important. And the context and a, an important part of context is the people themselves and what they care about and you know their 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 personal story. So I'd I'd like to spend much of this interview trying to get a little more of that personal story, if that's okay. But before we get started, um, can you please pronounce your own name? Uh, yes, absolutely. My name is Fadil Kaboob. Thank you. Okay. I hear multiple pronunciations and I've always wanted to hear sure. you say that. Okay. Excellent. All right. So Fadil, uh, you can briefly introduce yourself, but uh, why don't we get right into the questions and can you uh, talk about your, basically your, you know, your childhood and young adulthood in Saudi Arabia and Tunisia and maybe some anecdotes that uh, might illuminate, you know, a little bit of who you are. So thank you. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Um, again, my name is Fadil Kaboob. Uh, I teach economics at Denison University in Ohio, and I run the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Um, uh, to tell you a little bit about my, my background, uh, I can give you maybe the, the short version, and then we can go into follow-up questions if you're interested. Sure. Um, uh, so as as you mentioned, I was I grew up in the Middle East. I was uh, born in in Saudi Arabia and lived there for a while. Went to school there even. Uh, my mother's side of the family uh, is from Saudi Arabia and different parts of the region, the Middle East. Uh, my father's side of the family is from Tunisia and, and North Africa. So I, I went to school there for a few years, and then when I was nine, uh, we had to move back to Tunisia for. A number of reasons. And then I ended up finishing my education, um, middle school, high school in Tunisia, and, and I ended up going to college and studying economics also in, in Tunisia. And, and after that, I, I ended up going to grad school in Kansas City at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, uh, which is where I started this journey on the, on the MMT path, having uh, studied there with you know, everybody you know in the MMT community, Randy Ray, um, Matt Forstatter, Stephanie Kelton, uh, and everybody else who was uh, either at UMKC as, as a faculty member, like Fred Lee, uh, one of the giants of post-Keynesian economics, uh, and mm -hmm. people who uh, ended up sort of becoming part of the UMKC family as, as visitors as people who spent their sabbaticals or did their postdocs or, or, or just came to a lot of the conferences that were hosted uh, at UMKC in the early 2000s, which is when I was in grad school there. And after UMKC, I ended up teaching sort of on a, on a visiting uh, position, uh, you know, basis for a couple of years. I spent a year teaching at Simons Rock College uh, in Western Mass, which is part of Bard College. Ended up teaching for a year at Denison, actually, as a visitor. And then started my full-time teaching career uh, as a tenure-track position at Drew University in, in New Jersey, also another liberal arts college. Uh, and then finally, in 2008, ended up coming back to Denison uh, in Ohio uh, on a full-time basis. Uh, and I've been here since, since then. Um, and actually, uh, Fred Lee was 
most of my inspiration for the personal stories in the context. Um, so, um, is there, a, is there, can you talk about some of the reason that your family moved from Saudi Arabia to Tunisia when you were nine? Oh, sure. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, my, my father is Tunisian. So he was working in, in Saudi Arabia as, as an immigrant. And, um, you know, if, if you know anything about Saudi Arabia's immigration laws, they're not very um, friendly. <laughs> To foreigners, so I'll, I'll give you an example. And, and things have changed a little bit since then. So uh, at the time, this was in the in the nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties. Uh, if you are a, a foreigner working in in Saudi Arabia, as soon as you arrive in the country, your employer, your sponsor, is legally allowed and maybe even mandated, I think, to take your passport. And your family members, if they're if they're with you, to take all their passports and to hold them, to keep them essentially with with your employer, and you're only allowed to uh, take your passports back if you're leaving the country with the approval of your sponsor, with their permission. So that's when they give you your passport back. So it it really restricts your freedom in terms of when you can travel. Um, you know, you can imagine if a if a family situation emerges and somebody has to fly back home to care for their parents or uh, somebody in the hospital, and your employer happens not to be in town or not to be available, and mm -hmm. you don't you don't have your your passports, right? So uh, it it was it was not a kind of a, a, a situation that that was uh, easy to handle. Also, uh, a lot of the laws were at the time written in a way that almost give excessive power to, uh, to the employer and courts typically side with the Saudi employers as opposed to the, the workers or the immigrants and so on. So uh, there was a situation where, you know, my grandparents in Tunisia were sick and my father had to, you know, rush and, and, and go there. And my both of my parents ended up uh, going and I stayed in school with my grandparents, partly because it was school year, but partly because the employer at the time thought, well, you can sort of hold the kid hostage <laughs> so that, uh, oh. yeah, exactly. So my passport was kept uh, hostage with uh, with his employer at the time, and and you can imagine the tension that it created. Um, so my parents ended up staying in Tunisia, hoping that my situation will be resolved and that my grandparents will be able to get my passports and send me back home. And this sort of developed into a little diplomatic crisis between Tunisia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, really? <laughs> it, it went, yeah. Huh. The story of the of the nine-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah, the nine-year-old boy who couldn't go back to his home country, which was uh, Tunisia, wow. and ended up in newspapers and you know ambassadors and consulates sending back and forth official diplomatic communications, and uh, so it, it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> for the situation to get the result because clearly my father wasn't going to be able to go back and work for the same employer. And without uh, a sponsor, you can't go back and, and work for anybody else. 
so there was there was no going back for for my father essentially after that situation. Mm. Wow! Um, and I ended up actually missing quite a bit of the following academic year. Um, so nine year old that was about. Like- uh, this was so I finished what would be in, in the Middle East it will be called fourth grade fourth. in Saudi Arabia, and I was supposed to go into fifth grade. Yeah. So I couldn't go into fifth grade in Saudi Arabia because uh, I had to go to private school as a non-citizen, and, mm. and those were very expensive. And of course, Wait. our economic situation wasn't working well. Why are you? Uh, why were you a non? You were a non-citizen of Saudi Arabia because your parents moved out. Oh, because um, in Saudi Arabia, to be a citizen, even though I was born there, the the father had to be a Saudi citizen. Uh, it's not sufficient. That oh. you're born there and your mother is Saudi. Yeah, that's another thing about citizenship laws. Uh, <laughs> wow, Saudi this is... okay. so, I, so I couldn't go to public schools and we couldn't afford private school uh, with my father being unemployed and the situation being the way it was. So I missed uh, pretty much more than half the academic year for my fifth grade. And then eventually the situation ended up getting resolved, sort of. That is, I never actually got my passport back to this day, but I ended up traveling with like a diplomatic piece of paper that says you can travel without a passport. And I ended up going back to Tunisia in the middle of the academic year in a completely different academic environment. In, in Saudi Arabia, the, the language of instruction is Arabic. And, you know, kids learn a little bit of English, like very elementary type of stuff. But in Tunisia, the, Fr- the, the academic system is a, is a French post-colonial system. So French and Arabic are, are the two main languages. And I've never taken any French. And my mm-hmm. classmates in fifth grade had already started taking French uh, in second grade. Mm. Oh, so they wow. have second, third, fourth grade and half of the fifth grade year ahead of me in, in French. And, and it's like 50%. Not to 50%. mention the academic concepts themselves. Sure. And it's 50% of the instruction time in school uh, is in French. So I was way behind. (laughs) So my parents managed to convince the school to let me in in the middle of the academic year, despite all the deficiencies I had. And they convinced the principal that if the French teacher could have me both in the fifth grade class um, with my classmates, but at the same time, put me in the second grade class with the beginners, so I can ah. sort of play catch up in a, in literally three and a half months and and try to you know <laughs> make it. The principal agreed to do this, but the teacher wasn't there at the time. She was having a she was on leave, medical leave. She had a surgery of some sort, so she was gone for two weeks when I started school in Tunisia. So. It was kind of a relief. I didn't have to go straight into it. But you then know, the actually, clock you're, was you're, ticking. You're reminding me of, of Nelson. If you, if you watch The Simpsons, you know, you watch The Simpsons at all? Um, sometimes, yeah, but I, I don't know the, the what you're referring goes, to. There's a, there's a character named Nelson. He's, mm-hmm. He keeps failing school. And so he's like, he's like you know, whatever, an 18-year-old kid in like fourth grade or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well, let me tell you about it. I could barely fit in those um, second grade tables. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, I can't imagine. Like, I, But here's, here's the interesting story about this. 
um, th- those two weeks when the teacher was the French uh, language teacher was was not there. My uh, dad and my sister were were prepping me day and night, trying to teach me everything they can to mm. get to a point where the, the teacher would be kind of. Um, full enough to accept me in the classroom with all the challenges that it represents. If I can just convince her that I know a, a bit of French, that I'm not like completely starting from zero. Mm. So, so I was getting, you know, French lessons nonstop for those two weeks at home with the idea of the first meeting with the teacher, I would actually go in and talk to her in French because in, in Tunisia, you know, foreign language teachers, even though they're Tunisians, they would never speak to their students in Arabic. They always speak to their students in the language that they teach. And, and this is true throughout. So the expectation was on day one, the teacher was going to see me and ask me my name and ask me where I was from. And the, the, the whole conversation was going to happen in French. So mm-hmm. my dad and my sister were prepping me for that conversation. To, to go in and, and be able to answer, you know, my name and my age and my grade and where I came from, like basic conversation stuff. Mm-hmm. And this way she would not, you know, object <laughs> to the idea of having this kid that needs all of this remediation work uh, in her classroom. Mm-hmm. So, and, and in those two weeks, I was ready and practiced the whole thing. I know how to answer, you know, give my name and my age and basic conversation with the teacher and I was going into the classroom ready to have that conversation. There was, you know, no problem whatsoever. Okay. So as soon as I walk in and she calls my name and, and calls me to her desk, and then she looks at me straight in the eye and starts to ask, asking me, what's your name? Where are you from? And I froze. I, yeah. I started, I, I, I knew all the answers, but I was like, I'm not going to lie to this lady. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a very serious situation. <laughs> so I told, I started speaking to her in Arabic. I told her, oh. listen, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know how to answer. I know exactly what you're asking me and I can, you know, uh, fool you and give you the, the answers, the prepackaged answers that I memorized. But let me tell you the situation. I know <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and she wow, freaked that's, that's... out. <laughs> oh, she freaked out. Really? She was like, uh, this, this can't be happening. She, took me by the by the arm and said let's go to the principal's office right now <laughs> and she made a big scene she was like i'm not having oh, this kid no. in my classroom I was <laughs> he's just, way I was behind like... he needs to be in second grade <laughs> oh and my parents were like my parents were like what happened we prepared you for this thing i told them yeah but i'm not gonna lie to the lady <laughs> look at the situation after all i mean she's right <laughs> Wow. Um, I was I was honestly thinking that that was kind of a mature thing for a nine year old to do to admit so candidly and, and you know well it was a big lie it was like one of the biggest lies of my life mm. <laughs> is to fool this person that I that I, in two weeks I somehow made up three and a half years worth of French <laughs> so what um, happened so anyway it was a, a big situation and then of course the principal intervened and my parents and and so on. And they finally convinced her. They told her, listen, there's three and a half or maybe four months left in the academic year. They convinced her that, you know, I'll manage the Arabic portion of the curriculum well enough to pass. I just need remediation work to catch up on on the French side of things. 
so she she agreed to have me both in in the fifth grade with my classmates, but also do the full remainder of the year with the second graders, the the beginners. And the second graders were already ahead of me mm-hmm. <laughs> because they already had you know several months, like a, a trimester and a half worth of French that that I, that I didn't have. Uh, but of course, I mean, I could I could write the alphabet, I could you know do things, but they they were still learning like how to write the French show. So it was pretty, you know, challenging. So that's where I I barely I could barely fit in those second grade desks, uh-huh. and of course, it was such an awkward situation for this big kid, nine year old kid, sitting with the in the classroom with um, mm-hmm. w- with the little ones. But anyway, long story short. It, it, it was a, a lot of work, obviously, there, a lot of work with, at, at home with, uh, with my parents helping me and, and tutoring and all that. And in, uh, in the fifth grade class, uh, one of the, the, the biggest things that you know, students are, are taught in, at that level is dictation, like knowing, knowing how to spell uh, you know, long sentences, complicated vocabulary, and, and things like that. And there is a, a segment in, in class, a, an exam portion called like self dictation, where you literally memorize like a whole poem or a whole paragraph or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you walk in the classroom with, with no notes and you sit down and write it. And you're supposed to not only memorize the text, but also spell the whole thing uh, correctly. So I, I go into the classroom and one of those days and we have our assignment and the teacher says, go ahead, start your dictation exercise. And I did the whole thing, you know, studied for it and everything. And then the way we're supposed to check our work is we, I hand my uh, assignment to my classmate next to me and he hands his assignment to me and we're supposed to check the spelling and everything, kind of do the correction and then show it to the teacher. And of course, the teacher put me right next to the top student uh, in the classroom with the idea that it will rub on me somehow, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it'll be kind of in good behavior or whatever. So it, it, it was fine. Um, so he checks my uh, my work and he tells the teacher it's a, it's a perfect score. There's not a single spelling mistake. And she looked at me and she was like, this can't be right. You must have cheated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told her, I, I can do it again if you want <laughs> in front of you. Um, so to, she told me, no, go to the board. And she started dictating things left and right from that exercise, from other things we studied before. And I started spelling the whole thing, um, probably almost correctly, the whole thing maybe made like one or small and she could not believe that the, the kid who didn't know anything in French just two months ago was able to catch up and, and outperform, you know, the, the students in, in fifth grade. So that was kind of a, a, a great moment of, of victory. And, and I became her favorite student and, you know, a wonderful story. I mean, I was terrified of that teacher for the first few weeks because of the initial reaction and the whole situation. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a, a, a sweet <laughs> kind of closure to that thing. And I, I still remember that teacher to this day. I mean, it was uh, intense, but wonderful uh, life experience in her classroom. 
Wow. Okay. Because I when when you said the you, you were sat you sat next to the best student and you went up to the board, I I I got confused and I thought you were talking about the second grade for a minute. But then, oh no, this um, is the fifth grade yeah, class. Yeah. Yeah. That changed that changed the story when I understood that. Um, my first question, and this is kind of leading to a broader question of just kind of your memories of all of these things as an as a nine year old. What was your relationship, if you remember, with the second graders during those several months? Um, you know, it started as a, as an awkward uh, situation. People were confused. I mean, the other kids were confused. Um, but then, I mean, they understood that I came from a foreign country, that I never studied French. So, so as the whole school knew me as, as the foreigner, as, as the kid from Saudi Arabia. Um, so that, even though I was Tunisian, <laughs> but because I came from that educational system and I had to be put into the situation, I was always viewed as as the foreigner right as the immigrant in my own country and mm -hmm. of course when i was in saudi arabia i was also the immigrant <laughs> in the country in, yeah. in which i was born and okay. my family was was from and so on so so i was always yeah. an immigrant <laughs> and then later in my life i came to the u.s and of course i'm an immigrant <laughs> mm. uh, now i'm a u.s citizen but i'm still an immigrant everywhere mm. i go <laughs> so so that's oh that's something that was with me from from birth basically and of course, I also had a slight accent. When I was in Saudi Arabia, I had a slight accent because I was half Tunisian. And when definitely when I moved to Tunisia, having lived so long in Saudi Arabia, I definitely had a Saudi accent. And it took a while to get rid of it, obviously. And, and that, of course, becomes your identity when the kids know you, the kid with the accent who you know, is behind in French and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it creates this, this situation of you know, being viewed as, as the other, as, uh, as the foreigner and so on. And it, you know, in some cases it involves bullying and everything, but there is n never anything uh, that would, you know, resemble the, the bullying cases that we hear about and all that. But it, mm -hmm. but it was, you know, I, I, I was also the, the cool kid in a way who, managed all of these challenges and made some wonderful friends. Uh, some of my classmates from that fifth grade class are still my best friends to this day. Well, okay. So in the, in the U S it's the, the, the educational system, the lower educational system, grade schools is different. Mm -hmm. So like you're, you were just talking about a teacher who has fifth grade classes and second grade classes. Yeah. And that that's pretty unusual here. Like my wife is a oh, second sure. grade teacher. Yeah. She's just a second grade teacher, period. So, so in, in this, in that situation in the U S in public schools, second graders spend the whole day together. They go to recess together. They go to lunch together. They go to specials yeah. together. So I'm, I'm guessing <clears throat> that you didn't have as much of an opportunity to do like recess and, and, you know, secondary yeah, yeah. things with those second graders. Cause I was thinking of, no, like, no, no, not did at you all. become a big brother yeah. with that? Like kind of a big brother figure or something like that. But I guess no, it was not, not at all. It, it was like in and out. And, and I was, if anything, I was more connected to my fifth grade uh, classmates. So in Tunisia, you know, Tunisia is a developing country and, you know, became independent in 19 uh, mid 1950s. And it, sort of was way behind in terms of educational infrastructure, given the size of the population and, and so on. So the country was built on very limited educational resources, and, and the educational system carries that tradition pretty much to this day, even though now the situation is much better. So every school building would have two shifts of, of cohorts, 
so there's uh, like a fifth grade group A, fifth grade group B, and and the teacher is uh, is is with with both. So I was in in group A, which started uh, school at seven thirty a.m. And it goes until 10 a.m. That's the Arabic section, which includes uh, science and math and all the other, you know, subjects are, are in Arabic in grade school. And then you uh, leave at 10 and come back at 1230 afternoon and do the uh, French um, section from 1230 to 3 p.m. Okay. The other kids in group B, they start their day at 10 Oh. 10 to 12:30 do their arabic stuff and then they come they go home for lunch and then they come back uh, in the afternoon from 3 to 5:30 p.m. Wow. for their french uh, lessons and it's so that, for the so, teachers. so pretty pretty much it is a, a full day using the classroom space but it's it's like the size of the school is doubled when you have two shifts basically Sure. Um, so the, the French teachers uh, either teach two sections of the, you know, fifth grade, for example, or one section of the fifth grade and one section of the second grade. It, it depends on the teacher's assignment. Uh, but they're pretty much there all day, you know, doing different groups and, and things like that. Um, what was yeah. the, the general size of the school building? Was it like more like a schoolhouse or more like a, a U.S.? Oh, in, in, in my case, it was a big school because it was in the capital city. It was one of the big schools. So it was probably, you know, two to 3,000 students. Oh, I'm, I'm guessing wow. it, it was That's big. huge. Yeah. And it wow, was adjacent to the middle school and high school buildings of, of the same school. So it was literally right next door when I finished from the grade school, a transition to the middle and high school next door. Wow. Okay. Um, I, I don't remember the exact numbers of students, but it was big. That's very big. That's yeah. that's unusually big for for a grade school, especially. Um, uh, you you mentioned your sister and your father tutored you. How old is your sister? Um, my sister is uh, three years older than me, and she grew up in Tunisia with my Tunisian grandparents. So she never entered the Saudi school system because she was already in Tunisia and, and plugged into the school system. So even though my, my father and mother were in Saudi Arabia at the time with, with me, my sister, would um, we would see her during vacations and things like that. So she was in the Tunisian school system with, you know, French and, and everything. So she was able to help me transition to learning French and everything. Wow. Um, so, okay, so you were born in, in Saudi Arabia. Your yep. father was working there. Um, like what's the point of such a restrictive stance on immigration? What's, what's the point of that? Like what's the goal or what's the, the benefit to Saudi Arabia of that? Well, I mean, you, you sort of, the, the, the intensity of, of immigration laws in different countries is kind of on a spectrum, right? And, but they, all of these restrictions on immigration have the, the same intention after all which is to minimize immigration and, and to keep wages down and to, uh, you know, make sure that the workers know their place <laughs> in the system, that the, 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 you know, the citizens are the bosses and the immigrants are the workers. And, and this applies no matter what level of education or position. I mean, my father wasn't oh. doing manual work. My father was, you know, had a master's degree, had experience in, in business 
you know, my father speaks four languages, is skilled worker, right? It's not like uh, my father was begging for, you know, manual low paid job. Um, he, he was a manager. Uh, and yet, you know, manager, teacher, <laughs> you know, farm worker, restaurant worker, doesn't matter. It's, it's all immigrants. And the boss is the, the, the citizen. The immigrants are supposed to work there, you know, uh, get paid less than uh, nationals. And, and, and the pay scale gap, by the way, is still true to this day, uh, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in many other countries. So the, it, uh, that, is the, that is the default setting for an immigration system. And you have to remember that Saudi Arabia was a poor country prior to the 1970s and then transitioned into a massively wealthy country that didn't have uh, a skilled labor force uh, and, and transitioned into uh, needing to have millions of uh, expat workers coming in to build the infrastructure and to staff um, you know, the hotels and restaurants and, uh, and, and shops and, and so on. And the Saudi population benefited from that uh, wealth explosion that uh, meant, you know, massive government subsidies for education and, and welfare services and, and all kinds of things. So there was no need, especially at the time with a sm relatively small population, there was no need to have Saudis actually do the work, especially manual work and kind of things like that. So you could import workers, expats, to do that work. And the Saudi citizens can be the owners of businesses and, and companies and, and kind of collect profits from that process. So it created a, a very hierarchical uh, system that was also you know, divided based on citizenship, uh, race and ethnicity, and so on. So all of those layers are, are part of that process. Uh, and, and you fast forward to this day, those things backfire because now the situation is very different. Even though Saudi Arabia is still uh, technically a wealthy country, but it's a country now that has a larger population, a larger uh, youth population, and youth population that is highly uh, educated, increasingly more educated, but now is finding it challenging to compete in the labor market with foreign workers who are underpaid, who pay, who work longer hours, and who are massively overqualified in, in many cases. So let's say you're you're a, a college graduate in Saudi Arabia with a degree in marketing or accounting or whatever it is, and you're looking for a job, and now you're competing with, say, a Tunisian worker or uh, an Egyptian worker who has 10 years worth of experience in accounting, is willing to work for um, a relatively lower wage compared to what Saudis expect. That worker also happens to speak three or four foreign languages mm. and is willing to work beyond the nine to five hours uh, if you mm. make them. Now, if you're, if you're a Saudi citizen... You have the education, but you don't. You you just finished school, right? So you don't have the ten year experience. You don't speak those three or four foreign languages, especially if you're working in a company that does a lot of international business. And you expect to work a nine to five job and no weekends and no evenings, and and you expect the benefits that come with a job. So 
that makes it in the pay scale being biased against uh, immigrants. It, you know, if, if you're the employer, who are you going to hire? The Saudi graduate or the Egyptian or Tunisian uh, person with 10 years of experience and all that? And you mm -hmm. pay them less and they'll work harder, mm -hmm. right? So it created this situation whereby this, uh, this dual kind of labor market makes it extremely difficult for uh, young Saudis to actually enter the labor market. Now, it's not a problem if you come from a wealthy family, but the majority of uh, youth in Saudi Arabia these days don't come from a wealthy, wealthy families. They come from middle-class families, working-class families, let alone you know, poor families in some cases. And that means they end up unemployed uh, for a mm -hmm. long time. Uh, and that creates, obviously, an economic problem, a social problem, because if you don't have a job, you can't start a family, you can't buy a house, you can't, you know, it leads to other, other problems, obviously. And that means the government has to step in and subsidy, increase welfare subsidies for unemployed families and, and so mm -hmm. on. And that doesn't solve the problem. That's like a UBI, right? It's just postponing the problem. The, the roots of the problem require a much more fair and equitable labor market system whereby labor laws apply to everybody, right? Nine to five job means nine to five job. It, so um, it, it sounds like that's more like the U.S. part. I, I, I presume, I can only guess, I, I can't imagine this is, I, this has to be right, that the immigrants stole my job, right? That's where they focus their energy on the immigrants stole my job rather than the system that allows oh, sure. CEOs to do that. So, yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. So I wonder, I, and I'm sure your father knew that Saudi Arabia was like this, and and yet he chose to go there with all these restrictions and and low wages and so on. So I wonder, I wonder why he he chose to go there and do this, knowing oh. that it was a pretty draconian system. Well, it was sort of not his choice because my uh, my father went to school there. So you have to remember that Saudi Arabia is, is like a hub in the Middle East when it comes to uh, religious activity because of Mecca and, and Medina and so on. So my dad's parents, uh, who were very religious, actually packed up and moved the whole family when they were right after the kids finished high school and moved them there to go to university there. So my father ended up studying uh, both business and uh, Islamic studies in Saudi Arabia uh, as a college kid mm. um, and ended up during the, the high season of pilgrimage uh, sort of volunteering as a, as a medic with, uh, with the pilgrims uh, season basically for during his college years. Uh, so my dad's family already lived there most of the year, uh, mm. even though my grandfather was still sort of commuting, going back to Tunisia to finish, um, to, because he was a, an employee and his job was in Tunisia, but was commuting back and forth to uh, kind of keep his, his career going in Tunisia, but also support his uh, college kids now in, in Saudi Arabia, my, my dad and my uh, uncle. Mm -hmm. um, so... It, that's how my dad met my mother and ended up getting married and, and staying there. So it wasn't like a decision to move for jobs. He was already studying there and so on. But he was studying there as a as a foreigner. Uh, he was working there as a foreigner. So there was there's no such thing as a path to citizenship for foreigners. In, I was just in thinking that, yeah. yeah. 
Okay. It was always with the expectation you either have a work permit uh, with um, a, a Saudi business and, and you stay, and the day your work permit is, is done or you're fired, you can't even transfer to another em- employee uh, employer. You have to leave the country and then hope that some other employer will recruit you uh, again, which is typically very, very difficult. Okay. Um, I'd like to... I'd like to go back to the the drama of mm-hmm. basically it seems like Saudi Arabia was shamed into letting you go. Um, that the the publicity, the bad publicity, they mm-hmm. they just allowed you to go to Tunisia. That's what it seems like. And I, I wonder of your memory of the drama, the the political drama, and being in the media, and and what what was your do you, what was your memory of that as, as a nine year old? Do you? You know, I, well, it, it was sort of strange to see your uh, name or at least your initials uh, in the newspaper because they, you know, to protect your identity, they wouldn't like spell out your whole name and everything. But part of the media strategy was actually my, my parents' way of, of trying to raise the profile of the case to a, to a diplomatic level because otherwise there is legally there is nothing you can do to... Mm you know, to get my passport, which is why, by the way, to this day, that particular uh, employer still has my passport <laughs> uh, locked in a vault or somewhere, um, um, which is meaningless because eventually I ended up uh, getting a Tunisian passport. I actually couldn't get a Tunisian passport until I was ready to uh, go to college, uh, to go to grad school in the U.S. I never left the country. I was never allowed to have a passport. Because at the time, a passport is a very, you know, losing your passport, legally speaking, the passport is the property of the Tunisian government, and they just give it to you to travel with. You're not supposed to lose it. Oh, I never thought uh, of it that way. At the time, things are different, I guess, now, but at the time, there was quite a bit of trafficking in passports because they have, like, security features and whatever, and, and people steal them. And, you know, insert different pictures on them and use them for, you know, all kinds of illicit activity. So losing your passport was, I I think it might have been considered like losing your privilege to travel again. Mm. So it took a lot of uh, work with the Tunisian government for years to accept the fact that I, uh, they should give me a new passport to travel, to go to college, to, to, you know, go to grad school. And and it it took more than a decade worth of trying with the Tunisian government to get a passport. And eventually I got it, I think, just a few months before going to Kansas City. Uh, I mean, until the last minute, like, I I didn't know if I was actually ever uh, allowed to leave the country. Did did it delay your plans? No, it didn't. um, But it took a long time. (laughs) Uh, Because every time I apply, they say, well, where's your other passport? And I say, well, it was... tell the whole story there was a whole thing and and of course you know after more than a decade nobody remembers what was the original case or what was the situation they just know you lost your passport basically so you're not allowed to have another passport um so it took you know i think the what convinced them eventually to give me a passport was the fact that i already graduated college in tunisia i was unemployed and i had this admission letter from uh, graduate school in, in the U.S. And they had two choices, <laughs> accept me as unemployed in Tunisia or let me go <laughs> somewhere mm. else. And, and they pretty much always choose to let you go. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah. 
because that's one less person to worry about in the country. That's how they see it. Uh, okay. There is actually an official government strategy to deal with youth unemployment in Tunisia. Uh, when I was uh, finishing college, the government put out like a, a whole strategy, 42 different things that the government was doing to reduce youth unemployment, none of which was direct employment, <laughs> but all of which was <laughs> Make you people know, disappear, basically. supporting entrepreneurs, giving them micro credits, uh, start your own business, all kinds of kind of, uh, you know, entrepreneurship type of things. And then one of those strategies was supporting young people to find employment abroad. Mm. That was an official government strategy is to take, mm. you know, people you as a government spent so much money and effort to educate, to produce, you know, doctors and engineers and teachers and technicians and all that and help them find a job somewhere else. That is called brain drain with full support of the government. And to just to yeah. just to illustrate how how bad the situation is today with the pandemic, the um, oh, how do we call the, the the guys who do anesthesia before surgery? What's their anesthesiologist? Uh, anesthesiologist. Today, Tunisia, we have more Tunisian anesthesiologists working in France at this point during the pandemic than anesthesiologists working in Tunisia huh? and thousands of doctors, engineers, medical technicians have left the country because of austerity, because of unemployment, because of so many difficulties they face. And, and these are all young people, the majority of very young people. Well, we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this, your, you know, your, your wheelhouse at the end of, sure. you know, colonial, but, but just a kind of what you just said, how does that fit into your work? And I and I what I mean by that is that is is basically disappearing people out of the country, just ejecting people out of the country. Is that part of the picture of uh, you know colonialization of of is that kind of encouraged in a way by the the more powerful countries to just you know get rid of your smartest citizens because we don't want you to have to make you know high value products basically. Yeah, well, I mean, at the time, so the reason I mentioned this, because at the time I didn't understand this in a colonial and post-colonial context. I didn't understand like the macro economics of it, the way I, I, I you actually, hear me for, discuss it I, today. Actually, let me, let me interrupt you just for a moment. Sure. And actually, it, what it makes me think of is those people, you, yeah. are high value products. And so they want you to get rid of, they want those countries, those developing countries to get rid of the good people. Let us have your good people. Well, sure. But, but again, at the time, I didn't see it this way. But thinking back on, you know, my personal experience, my own friends, uh, my own family members, including my, my father and, and their professional journey and immigration journey, it's all part of this extractive system mm. uh, that, we, that we literally lived in and, and experienced and continue to experience to this day. Um, so it was... Of course, you, you think critically about it at, at that time and you realize, well, this is not benefiting Tunisia. This is benefiting, you know, the, the global north and, and so on. Um, but you don't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, and I think this is, this is kind of the privilege I have 
today as an as an academic who spent quite a bit of time thinking about this and connecting the dots between theory and, and, and practice, it it kind of makes me double my efforts in trying to provide this uh, analytical explanation and and the the logical policy kind of consequences that must come out of this analysis try to share this with as many policymakers as many engaged citizens as many activists and organizers so we can you know tackle the root causes of of these problems so that uh, you know only thinking back on on those experiences now allows me to kind of see more clearly how I came to this particular path of uh, research and, and and policy work. Okay. Okay. It didn't happen um, by accident. In other words, I, I lived it and kind of struggled to understand it, make sense of it, and um, and and I'm again I'm in this privileged situation now where I. I can put these things together and understand exactly what happened to um, most of my friends, myself, my my family, and so on. That's interesting. So, so this experience you're telling us about was was your kind of catalyst to your 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 work. Your sure, major part and, of your I, work. and I didn't know it at the time, but I was constantly drawn to these questions and these issues, in uh, in terms of my academic interests. Hmm. Okay. Um, Okay, so let's do two more personal things, and let's then let's start getting into a- a- academic stuff. Um, basically, I, I mean, it's kind of very drastically switching gears. Um, being a parent, in in having all the experiences that you've gone through, and I'd like to transition into into music. And I'm wondering if music is part of being a parent at all. And I know that that's kind of. I was hoping it would fit in a little more smoothly. I can't quite fit, think of a, a smooth transition, but but then I'd like to talk about the music and, and focus on Bob Marley. And so, oh sure, uh, you, you know, you can kind of start start wherever you think is appropriate, and then I can sure. Well, you know, as as a parent, you start a whole new journey, kind of uh, dealing directly with with your children and their needs, and thinking about their future and you know, trying to do the, the best you can to, to give them the best quality of life and education experience. And, and, and you start thinking of them not just obviously as, a, as, you know, human beings you need to take care of physically, but their mental well-being, what they're thinking, the experiences they have, this is a whole other thing. And that naturally makes you reflect on your own childhood and experience and upbringing. And, and you start recognizing how much work must have gone uh, into, you know, taking care of you. And, and that means the parents and grandparents and, and all the struggles they, they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. But um, as I mentioned earlier, as, um, uh, as an immigrant, you also deal with a whole other set of issues with, with parenting and with identity, with language that... Um, you know, on, on the one hand, my kids are Americans. They're born and raised here. On the other hand, they're also Arab Americans, and they have uh, a complex identity linguistically and in terms of religion and tradition. And they they fit in and uh, they try to fit uh, in in these two separate worlds. And and one of those worlds is is mine, <laughs> and they they're not fully in it because they're. They didn't live in the Middle East. I mean, they traveled a little bit as, as children, 
But this is the world they know. It's, it's the United States. This is their country, their place. But somehow they need to interface with, uh, with the world of their parents uh, if I and may grandparents. Ask, if I may ask, where, uh, where did you meet your wife? Was that, did you meet her in the United oh, and, States? Yeah, my wife is, is Arab-American. Um, so we met here in, in the United States. She was born and raised in the U.S., but also from an, an Arab immigrant family. So okay. she has, to some extent, similar experience, probably closer experience to our children because they were born and raised here, uh, okay. like their mom. My experience is probably closer to uh, her parents' experience who came as, as immigrants in, in the mm. U.S. Okay. Uh, so it's a very interesting. So I, I rely a lot on my wife in, in these situations for dealing with the, with the kids' experience because she lived that experience as the, oh, the daughter yeah. of immigrants. Sure. But as, a, as, as a, an American citizen was born and raised here but belongs to these two separate worlds, the, the physical world in which they live, which is the United States, but the, the cultural diaspora of the immigrant family that happens to be her parents. And it's challenging for the parents because it's very hard to understand that your kids don't know your world. <laughs> they just sure. hear about it or see some of the cultural effects of it. But that's very tangential to their reality here. And, yeah. and that's very challenging for, for little ones to, to understand and, and reconcile. And that's why it requires quite a bit of attention to, to allow those two worlds to fuse together in, um, in a smooth way, non-alienating um, you know, way, uh, and then to take that identity and share it with their friends and, and their world in a way that makes them feel proud and makes them feel you know, comfortable in, in their own skin uh, as, as, who, uh, as the people that they're going to grow up to be. So, right. so that's something that, that is very kind of constant on our minds. And, and it starts with the littlest things as little interactions with other kids on the playground or at school or birthday parties, you know, tiny little things. And, and you know, little kids don't really know, uh, you know, especially when they're first starting to speak, they don't know that they're actually speaking half Arabic and half English. They just know mm. that this is the language they speak at home. So they assume that other kids will understand it, <laughs> right. uh, which which creates for some fun situations, of course, at early age. But when when they're a little older, of course, they they start to recognize that these are different languages, and you know, you know, there's there's certain words you can uh, speak to your American friends yeah. that they will not understand, right? I have a very I have a very brief story about my kid that you just reminded me of. So okay, so when we registered my my older son for I think it was kindergarten. We took him to the school and they, you know, they, they did they do a little, you know, the teacher talks with him and in private just to kind of get a sense of his level. And the teacher comes out and, and she asks us, what, what is, does your son have the same last name as you? And we're like, what? And he said, <laughs> and it turned out that she said, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And then she said, what's your last name? And I, I don't remember exactly the sequence. I kind of kind of forgot. But she said, you know, what? no, what, what's your name? And he said, Super Herbie. And what, what <laughs> you, am I wrong? Tell me quick. 
anyway, we, his nickname is Super Herbie. And so so she asked him his name and somehow he said Super Herbie, but I think my real name is Super Herbie or something like that. And so we had to just, we had to t- teach him, you know, that's just private, you know, that's just a private joke between us. And he he actually went out in the world thinking that that his secret name or his real name was, was Super Herbie. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Absolutely. Um, um, so can you give a sense of the, of how, I mean, you, obviously you want your kids to understand your experience in the, in, in the experience of an immigrant and, you know, they don't have some of the difficulties that you, that you experienced and their grandparents experienced. So how do you, how do you communicate or share with, or tell stories to, or whatever it is, how do you get your kids to learn that? more clearly well language is is obviously a, a key component of that but it's it's challenging you know to to do this um, especially because my my wife and I don't speak the same dialect we, we both speak Arabic um, but they're different dialects so we ended up from the beginning of our relationship just speaking English because it's just more convenient so uh, we ended up agreeing to use my wife's dialect as the language of instruction for the kids because it's easier. Where's your um, dialect from? Uh, she's a Palestinian uh, Jordanian uh, dialect is, is much easier than the North African dialects. So, so that's the, the Arabic that the kids know the most, but they're, now they're a little older. So they're starting to learn that there are actually different dialects and they're listening to, quite a bit of uh, Tunisian music and things like that. So they're learning different words, but we still use, you know, the kind of Levantian uh, dialect and accent uh, at home, Uh, which is, which is fine with me because I'm sort of used to it because I, I also learned different dialects early on. I lived in Saudi Arabia and have family members from different parts of the, the region. So I'm comfortable with different dialects. But it just doesn't come naturally, like for day-to-day conversations. It's kind of you have to make the effort to <laughs> to speak a, a different dialect, and at the same mm-hmm. time, you live in an English-speaking world, you know, twenty-four-seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, the kids ended up picking up English as the main language at home, with quite a bit of Arabic infused. And uh, the older they get, the more easily we can uh, kind of introduce uh, more Arabic. So. So that's language. The other thing is is music, um, and I'm, you know, my kind of best form of uh, therapy and <laughs> and entertainment for me is is music. So I listen to a lot of music, and of course I introduce uh, the kids to uh, to that. Uh, and I'm very eclectic in my musical choices. So everything from Metallica to Bob Marley to oh, Tunisian wow. rap to, you know, folk music, Middle Eastern folk music, all, all kinds of things. So I, I sort of made me kind of shift my day-to-day musical tastes to try to draw them to as much Arabic music that it would expose them to not just the, the sounds and, the, and all that, but also the, to the language. Um, and, and what made me discover this uh, kind of more in, uh, intensely was I, was I had some Arabic classical music playing on, on TV. Actually, Fidel, if, yeah. I, if I may, sure. I'd like to, I want to go into music. I'd like sure. to have, I have a, I have a follow-up question from what you were talking about previous, if I may. Sure. So you remember what you were just about to say, please. Yeah, so I will. Go right back to that. Okay, good. Um, first, how old are your kids? Uh, 
this point, my kids are um, seven and a half, five and a half, and two and a half. Okay. okay. Three boys. Wow. Three boys. Okay. I have, I have 12 and 15. Um, was there a community of people for them to speak your wife's dialect with outside of your home? Uh, other than their grandparents, um, very little. I mean, they're um, kind of uh, my wife's family is nearby, but not. It's not like intense when I say nearby, like two hours away. Mm-hmm. So it's not like something that uh, they're exposed to on a day to day basis. So that makes it more challenging, obviously. Okay. Okay. So you basically are choosing to keep your language alive with your kids. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you, you have to, you know, uh, intentionally try to do that. Otherwise, it, it just disappears. Yeah. I, and I, of course, I hear... when, when you lose the language, you lose everything else that comes with it. Right. I, you're reminding me, I, I, I'm, I believe this is correct, that, that I, Israel actually brought Hebrew back to life, back from the dead. Um, at first, somehow, somehow, that I believe that's correct. Um, okay, so music. Can you go back to? Forgive me for. Can you go back to what you were saying regarding music? Sure. So, um, so the the kids obviously kind of are attracted first to the, the the tunes if if they find them interesting and so on, and and then they become curious about the words, the lyrics, and what's the meaning of this song. So they 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 started constantly asking questions. What does it mean? What is the song about? And of course, you can't explain the whole song, but you pick like some keywords that you want them to learn and you kind of engage in conversations with them. And they pick it up pretty quickly. They start, you know, singing with the, with the tune and then they start using that word in, a, in, in an English sentence <laughs> to substitute for the English word. And they start playing around with, with the vocabulary. So, so that was the case with the, with the two older kids to some extent. It was sort of working. But then the two-year-old, one day I was playing classical music on TV and he just stood there and was mesmerized, stood mm, there for 15 minutes. I mean, classical wow. songs are long. And he thought it was the most beautiful thing he's ever heard. Wow. And it is unusual for children to be attracted to classical music. So I, I noticed that and I was like, he, he doesn't sit in front of a a screen for more than 30 seconds, no matter what's on TV, he was completely mesmerized by that. And so we started... Was the video of the orchestra on the screen or just the Yeah, yeah, the orchestra and the singer. It was an uh, an Om Kalthum classical song, but it Mm -hmm. was performed recently with with a new orchestra. And uh, actually, it's an Arab-American orchestra from Michigan. Mm -hmm. Uh, and an Egyptian uh, singer, uh, opera singer, you could say. Um, so he was just mesmerized by the whole thing. So we started, you know, playing more of those videos from the same orchestra, and he just loved it. And because wow. of his kind of fascination with that particular type of music, his older brothers started getting interested in it too, and, and it wow. became sort of a a family thing without <laughs> listening. And it, it was interesting. It started with classical music, and but him discovering that it's another language, him discovering that he can translate the meaning of a word from Arabic to English, it was like a whole world of discovery for him. Hmm. And he started asking, what is this song about? What does it mean? 
for for a two year old, it's 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 fascinating. So and because of that whole experience, now his older brothers are so much more into it than they would have been uh, otherwise. And it's interesting. He started, uh, you know, with with classical music, and now he's into any kind of uh, Arabic music. We we listen to you know, hip hop and pop music and everything. So, so now he's, he's into the, the tunes, but classical music is always uh, his thing. Like in the car at home, when he wants to listen to music, wow. we say, can, Good can job. we put, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I was never like that deep into Arabic classical music until very recently in my life. It's something that usually older adults appreciate more <laughs> and and uh, so that's what makes it very fascinating uh, so that you know they started asking about instruments musical instruments um, so we now we have a, a few musical instruments at home for them to play with and hopefully at some point to learn more you know more thoroughly uh, mm-hmm. which is something that I never experienced we didn't have any musical instruments or music classes uh, you know music lessons and things like that even though I was very musical from an early age but we never had the opportunity to be exposed to it or practice it and things like mm. that for a variety of reasons. That's um, so that's something that that's kind of uh, uh, makes me happy uh, that, you know, we have this new family thing going that's probably going to, you know, draw the, the kids a bit more to our culture and, 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 and they're very, you know, they share this proudly with their playmates and with their friends. And they even try to play these, these songs for them and try to, and of course the other kids are like, well, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any any sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have you taken your family? Have you taken your boys to a a concert, an orchestral concert? Well, this discovery happened during the pandemic. (laughs) Ah, there you go. So I'm looking forward to, to the opportunity to, to do that with them. And I'm hoping as soon as the uh, National Arab American Orchestra starts having concerts again, uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to to make a, a family trip out of it, either in Michigan or they play in different parts of the country too.
Today I talk with Fadl Kaboob about his personal story. His childhood in Saudi Arabia and Tunisia, being a parent, his love of music, and how music has become part of his parenting. Fadl is an economics professor at Denison University in Granville, Ohio, and the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, an interdisciplinary public policy think tank. The focus of his academic work is on how the lens of MMT can inform developing nations, which we talk about in the second half of part two. I've written a post filled with links to Fadl's papers, posts, and appearances, a link to which you can find in the show notes. Today's story begins with a nine-year-old Fadl at the center of a political drama between his two home countries of Saudi Arabia and Tunisia. When his grandparents in Tunisia fell ill, his father rushed home from his job in Saudi Arabia to take care of them. Saudi Arabia's immigration laws require foreign workers to give their employers not only their own passport, but also the passports of all their children. Unfortunately, when Fadl's father left for Tunisia, the employer decided not to release Fadl's passport, essentially holding the nine-year-old hostage. His family leveraged the media to shame Saudi Arabia into allowing the little boy to be reunited with his family. To this day, Fadl has never seen his original passport. We then turn to the story of how Fadl joined the fifth grade in Tunisia with children who had a three and a half year head start in learning French. This is the language spoken during half of the instruction time in the country. The overriding theme of Fadl's story, however, is how there is no place on earth where he is not considered an outsider or immigrant. Babies born in Saudi Arabia are only considered citizens if their father is a Saudi citizen. Fadl's mother was a citizen, but his father was Tunisian. When he moved to Tunisia, he had a Saudi accent and was unable to speak French. And now, even though a U.S. citizen, he remains an immigrant. The experience, plus witnessing the experience of his parents and home countries, has greatly influenced and inspired not only his academic work, but also his decisions as the parent of three little boys. This podcast, Activist MMT, is dedicated half to academic concepts and half to the personal stories of how people, both lay people and academics, came to MMT and how it changed them. The reason I believe these personal stories are so important is because it's not possible to separate the academic concepts from those who develop and promote them. This includes their personal stories, what they care about, and how they choose to use the power they have or don't have. The idea was primarily inspired by Fred Lee in his 2006 book, A History of Heterodox Economics, which was recommended to me by Nathan Tankus. Neoclassical economics would have you focus only on their maths and models and not the discriminatory behavior of universities and journals and those that back those universities, journals, and their economists. They would prefer you not look at any other discipline, such as history, culture, sociology, institutions, and especially politics. The entire neoliberal project would have you focus only on the how are you going to pay for it question and not the minor inconvenience of having to change the very foundation of human society 
if we are not to go extinct in the coming decades. I talk much more about this concept of interdisciplinarity in my introduction to episode 81 with Richard Tai. But for now, on to my conversation with Fadl Kaboob. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Enjoy. Enjoy. 